Welcome everyone, this is all about Windows Phone Insight Podcast 245, recording this on 20th of February 2018. I am Steve Litchfield, and after, well, a, a gap of a week when we had Matt Lacey in, who filled in very nicely, we have Rafe Blanford back. Hi, Rafe. Yes, thank you very much, Steve, uh, and thank you actually to Matt for filling in last week. But uh, Steve has managed to successfully track me down and uh, say, you really would like to do a podcast. And I'd, yes, Steve, I absolutely would. That's exactly what I want to do this evening. So I'm looking forward <laughs> to talking about all the usual uh, Windows 10 mobile related things, mobile more generally, and our usual side chat, of course. I'm hoping, and I take it you genuinely do want to do this podcast. I know no, a... no, I absolutely do. No, it's one of the highlights <laughs> of my week. Good, good, good. Anyway, um, we have quite a bit to chat about. You will be at MWC next week for a, a sort of flying visit, and that may preclude you being on the podcast, but uh, I'm sure we can get another guest in, and then you can appear again in a fortnight. But uh, I think people quite like hearing your voice, certainly twice a month. <laughs> yes, well, I'll try uh, and make sure my dulcet tones return before too long. And yeah. you're right, it is MWC next week. Probably fair to say we're not really expecting any news from uh, Microsoft, although I guess I could uh, be uh, fantastically surprised. And I'm not sure I'm going to be seeing a lot of Windows 10 mobile devices about, but uh, it still remains one of the biggest shows uh, for mobile in the year. And there will probably be some big handset announcements, but also increasingly now it's an opportunity to see some of the wider things around mobile. So uh, probably in two weeks time, I'll come back and report on what was interesting, kind of what caught my attention and all the other news stories in a sort of summary format from uh, Barcelona. Okay, well, let's start start off with something that, that warmed the cockles of my heart, and that's that the Idle 4 Pro, which I've become quite attached to, really, um, has been struggling since launch with a problem whereby the fingerprint sensor on the back was quite finicky, really. You had to really centre your finger you know, precisely before it would recognise you. And I... I, I we kind of got the impression that this was some kind of low-level driver issue and that Alcatel should really fix their firmware. And Alcatel being Alcatel on any platform, whether it's Android or Windows 10 Mobile, um, it just puts no effort whatsoever into follow-up after their device's launch. I thought, well, there we are. I'll have to live with this. However, it turns out it was something in that Microsoft could fix at their end in terms of the operating system. And I'm assuming this was them rewriting the Windows Hello, Co. This is the system authentication system that works on laptop and tablets and phones and so forth. Iris recognition, fingerprint sensors, face recognition. I think they've rewritten enough of it now that it has replaced the old buggy fingerprint sensor recognizing code on the certainly on the Alcatel Idle 4 Pro. And I'm assuming the Elite X3 as well. Uh, with some code that's much more forgiving. And now you can put your fingerprint virtually anywhere on the sensor at any angle, and not even the full fingerprint, and it just works. So well done to Microsoft. Um, boo, yabu sucks to Alcatel, but, but I've now got a much faster and more reliable, smoother way of getting into my Alcatel Idle 4 Pro. Yeah, it's great to see this because I think it's probably fair to say we weren't necessarily expecting to see updates relating to the hardware and obviously the kind of biometric or Windows Hello uh, security or identification is one of those things that really makes the phone uh, a pleasure to use. And I think anyone who's switched to a device that has a fingerprint sensor or equivalent, it's, sort of, it's very hard to then go back to having to put your PIN code in each time. It's just, you know, I, I guess it's uh, just removing that little bit of friction and, you know, complaining about it does seem like um, <laughs> unduly fussy, but it's one of those things that as soon as you've had it, you don't really don't want to live without it. Um, 
in the article and in the comments there's some speculation about how this is done uh, i agree with you steve i think something's been rewritten here i suspect it may be a case of um windows hello has been made less fussy about exactly the how the matching happens because if you look at the alcatel device actually the fingerprint sensor itself is quite small so if you place a, yeah. a, a thumbnail or a finger across it the chances are you'll be covering up most of it or indeed there'll be bits sort of draped off the side if you will yeah and i suspect what microsoft has done is maybe focused on you know what comes off the middle of the sensor and then gone you know does that match against some part of the fingerprint we've got and rather than maybe looking for a 95 percent match it's looking for a uh, 70% match and it, it just means it's slightly more forgiving now it doesn't necessarily mean it's any less secure although I suspect there might be a bit of a, a, a drop-off um, but this actually reflects the fact that the kind of the data you get from different fingerprint sensors does vary they don't I mean it, none of them actually just take a fingerprint and sort of take a, an impression of that and compare it against it it's actually uh, effectively doing pattern recognition against um what's happening and yeah. so i suspect they've just tweaked that to make it a little bit more reliable but the upshot is of course and uh, i mean i've spoken to a couple of owners who basically said they found the whole fingerprint sensor unusable others have said it's worked fine for them but i suspect this is a case of you can probably guarantee that 99 percent of the time it will work first or second go and you'll very rarely get an occasion where you get forced back to put in the uh, pin code so yeah you know improves the experience of the phone i mean i know steve when you you were talking about it you you found that it quite often you know went through those three failed attempts you had to do the pin code is it doing it first and every time now it does it first time 90 percent of the time and i think that's probably as good as most of the android and iphone competition um i love your idea by the way rafe that there's probably a, there's a config.sys file somewhere with a little <laughs> parameter match percent and someone's just changed it from 90 to 80 and that's made all the difference i suspect it's a lot more complicated than that but uh, yes you're probably right that they've relaxed the, how tightly the patterns have to match and the algorithms have to uh, to match all the different nodes so anyway the upshot is that it's now usable the one downside or rather the one that's still caveat is for all of the Windows 10 mobile, and indeed the Windows 10 generally devices, is that Windows Hello insists on putting up a message saying, Hello Rafe, or Hello Steve, to confirm that you have indeed signed in. Given mm. that 99.999% of the time it's you using your phone getting in, it doesn't need to say Hello Rafe, it's you getting into your phone, and the, the one second it takes to pop up that message is one second of delay that you're going to see 50 times a day. They could, there sh needs to be some kind of setting across all the Windows 10 devices. Don't confirm that you are who you say you are, just let me in. Yeah, you do wonder whether it's one of those screens that's in place to kind of hide some other, <laughs> delay. other delay. Yeah. But you, you do feel like, going, yes, I still know who I am. Well done, phone. Yes, it's all rather frustrating. Anyway, uh, moving on to uh, other matters. Something Microsoft has broken, but it doesn't really matter. Um, we're kind of uh, wondering, Rafe, whether all we'll get from now on is security fixes and bug fixes. Um, but um, they're clearly doing work on the underlying edge browser and it, the Edge HTML engine because uh, in the late, very latest Windows 10 mobile build, 
15.254.248 came out a few days ago, the, the monthly update. One of the things Microsoft broke was the ability of Microsoft Edge browser to read PDF files, which is something it acquired a bit, a facility it acquired about two years ago. Um, and the very fact that they've broken that implies they were changing the code and actually improving the engine. So I actually take this as a positive. I mean, it, it's it, rather than leave Edge as it was, they're taking steps under the hood to improve the browser code and to make it better, more secure and faster. And I, But I didn't want people to go without their, their daily dose of PDF files. So I did point <laughs> out to people in an article at length, at great length, that the sheer number of really far better options for reading PDF files on Windows 10 Mobile, and I don't think anyone's going to be too disappointed. No, I think that's right. And as you say, uh, I think it's probably one of the best served areas of uh, applications. Actually, some of them make it incredibly easy to read all sorts of uh, documents. And I guess PDF is one of those standard formats that has proliferated against some people's judgments um, because it does make an easy way to share kind of a standard document and know that the other person is going to be able to see it as intended. Now, obviously, some of these apps do uh, support the kind of reflaring and changing the way effectively reading modes, and that's great as well. Um, I guess for a lot of people, they still default to the browser, whether it's on mobile or desktop. But um, it's worth remembering that actually, a lot of these, particularly once you get past 10 pages or something, having the ability to navigate around a bit more easily, whether that's through uh, thumbnails or contents, this is actually a really important thing. Um, and so, yes, I mean, in an area where we've talked in the past about how Microsoft has sort of taken away some features, actually the enterprise stuff in Office and obviously something like PDF still seems uh, very well served, although in this case it's third parties doing a lot of the heavy lifting. Still frustrating to see um, updates kind of breaking uh, functionality. And this isn't something that's obscure. You know, this is quite a big thing. So I'm kind of surprised this wasn't picked up in the sort of automatic testing um, you sort of wonder how many test cases and regression, how much regression testing is being done against, you know, Windows 10 mobile updates. Now, I suppose you you can't, I can't be too churlish about it because actually the rate of update still remains, you know, relatively yeah. impressive, and I suspect there's an awful lot of automation going on uh, in order to make that happen. Um, but let's hope it gets fixed quickly. Yeah, I did notice that no normally we have Patch Tuesday, as it's called, the second Tuesday in every month is when these monthly uh, bug fixes, security patches come out. This to this month, it was Patch Wednesday and the one day delay. I'm just wondering whether someone at Microsoft picked this <laughs> this PDF problem up at the very last minute and they thought, quick, we can't release it. We've broken PDF. They had an emergency meeting, which took you know an afternoon or so to get the various approvals. And then the decision was made, OK, we go ahead with it's broken. We make, an, make it as a known issue and people can make their own arrangements. So clearly there was, it was a big deal. And I suspect that's why there was the day's delay. But that's maybe just be, me being a bit paranoid. <laughs> Anyway, moving on. Um, PWAs, we've talked about um, progressive web apps in the past on the podcast, Rafe, and I know you're probably much more up to speed on this than I am. But um, I did notice that Google Maps Go, which was the, uh, Google's lightweight version of Google Maps for the sort of low-end Android phones, uh, has been implemented as a PWA for, for Android. And I've got, ha, huh, I know, if we can get the actual URL that, that, that's being used under the uh, under the hood... We can actually plumb this into Edge as a favourite, and then we can run Google Maps on a Windows 10 mobile phone. And it works. It jolly well works. And if you go and look at the screenshots, Rafe, you can you can search around at the Google Maps POIs and Maps databases. And, of course, the maps are bang, cut, cutting edge, right up to date, uh, zooming in and out, searching for stuff, getting routes. 
uh, satellite views, traffic, the works, the one thing, the one thing you can't do with this PWA, and I'm assuming that's a limitation of the PWA uh, interpretation uh, engine under, under Edge, um, is that you can't do real-time navigation. I'd love to play with this on an Android phone and see whether you do get any real-time uh, functionality on that as well. It may just be that the Google Maps Go is so reduced from the full system that you don't can't possibly have that real-time navigation as well. But it's a jolly good facility, and I've, I've certainly been building up the Maps folder on the start screen of my uh, Alcatel Idle 4 Pro. And this has definitely made it. It's a, it's a wonderful facility. And when you're searching for something and uh, Windows 10 Maps just can't get close or it can't find the road you want or it hasn't got the up-to-date maps, then this is a jolly good uh, backup. And it's free. Wow, this is a really nice find. I ha I wasn't aware of this. I mean, I'd heard about kind of the light version, but I'd never tried it out myself. Um, and actually, it's probably a perfect case for where a PWA makes a lot of sense um, because it, it ticks a lot of the attributes i mean maybe not so much as actually having an entire light version of the application as facebook started doing with a, a couple of its apps um but nonetheless the idea that you kind of download all the framework and the app bit and then presumably most of the data involved is just in updating the maps themselves and yeah. uh, running searches and so that's much lighter data usage than kind of the full version of uh google maps um, I suspect you're right. It's just the directions probably or uh, kind of real-time directions is something that's not available, and that's where you would need to get hold of the app. But for Windows 10 mobile users who want access to it and want it in a performant way, what a great way to do it. Um, and as you say, a lot of it, I suspect, is the use case around you're heading somewhere, you want to find the exact location of a point of information. You know, you're being referred to a particular restaurant or a village hall or something that isn't in the uh, you know, standard uh, Windows Maps app or whatever is your preferred solution, there's a very good chance you'll be available on Google. Um, or you want to do some of the kind of public transport planning or you know some of those other elements of uh, yeah. Google, Google Maps. So, yeah, this is, this is a really nice find. And it just, just goes to show that uh, Edge has come such a long way compared to kind of the early versions of having of yeah. Windows with Internet Explorer on. And while Edge is by no means perfect, it's certainly kind of a bit of a change from the bad old days where Microsoft's browser was different to everyone else's. Now, there's, there's still an element of that, don't get me wrong. But the fact that uh, you can be pretty certain that Google did not make any effort to officially support <laughs> yeah. Edge or Windows 10 Mobile, and the fact that it does work without um, apparently any problems is really a testament to how much Edge has been standardized, and particularly when you think about some of these PWA things, those are things that you don't get in Safari on iPhone, or at least not the full implementation. And I think it would be fair to describe them as more cutting edge or more recent browser features. So there's the things you might expect to be missing from Edge or to be dropped out from a support point of view. So no great news that this works. And yeah, I'm definitely going to be adding this to my uh, start screen as a bookmark. As you rightly say in the article, it's dead easy just to go to the URL and then add it to your start screen yeah. and have uh, very ready access to it. So, yeah, really nice, nice, nice find, Steve. And yes, for a, a PWA, which is kind of a, in this instance, you're really talking about a standard interface to a map then with some some search on the top of it. It probably is one of those cases where it works really well. In fact, I, I'm almost surprised it works as well as it does because it's starting to push at some of the higher level of functionality but uh, yeah great find and uh, thoroughly recommended i look forward to trying this
Yeah, yeah, and it it shows what uh, Edge can do for PWAs. I do recognise that it doesn't have the complete, full, one hundred percent set of PWA facilities that people are now starting to talk about for later in twenty eighteen. And in the comments, I did notice that our, one of our regular contributors, Gilbert, says uh, he's pointed us to a website, um, whatwebcando.today. And if you type that into the URL bar in any browser, really, but especially on Edge on Windows 10 Mobile, it lists all the different PWA capabilities that are reported um, back to the to the server from the browser you're using. So if you use that, you'll, it'll show you a series of ticks and crosses, and you can see at a glance just what's currently implemented. And I would expect even that to acquire a few more ticks before Microsoft finishes tinkering with Edge. Even under Windows 10 Mobile, they say they're not you know, developing any more features. And by that, they mean front-end consumer-facing features. But they're still tinkering around with the, the, the underlying browser engine and browser code. And of course, of course, that is common across all the different form factors. So I think this uh, What Web Can Do dot today will report more as the year goes on. Very good news. Yeah, it's, prob it's probably worth keeping uh, an eye on. And as you say, we are seeing more PWA things. And in this sense, it does kind of make perfect sense that a website where you're uh, there's obviously lots of things that you would use over and over again if you're just thinking about kind of a page reloading. And we talked last time we talked about PWAs. We sort of almost talked about different classes of implementation. I kind of expressed a view that I thought lots of websites would go towards a PWA route. Arguably, you still need a basic version as well for things that don't support PWAs. Really, or you have to write your PWA in such a way that it degrades gracefully. Um, and there's still a room for doing native apps. And actually, this is almost a perfect example in some ways, because presumably you can continue to use a non-PWA version of Google Maps. Want a bit of performance boost goes for this. Want a full experience, you're still going to download the native app. And if you're Google, obviously, you can afford to kind of invest across all three of those areas. But equally well, if you're a company that maybe has to make a choice, you can see how a survey company might go, OK, well, I'll, I'll do the standard website because that's universal. And I've got a little bit of budget left over, but I haven't got quite enough to do native apps. But I know I'm going to do a PWA and then I'm going to encourage people to pin it or look in the future about how can I bring that into the app store or whatever it might be. And that, that feels to me like a perfectly reasonable strategy. And I think this actually demonstrates it quite nicely. OK, OK. Uh, well, moving on, uh, we've got several more things to chat about on the podcast. There's a story uh, advertising this this new build of Windows 10 Mobile. In fact, there's new builds, of course, for all the branches, uh, creators update and also anniversary update. They all get new builds every month. It's quite an impressive system really Microsoft's got going. Um, this story here has another of my charts in, Rafe, and I know how everyone likes my charts. This, this gives a time scale from 2015 right through to 20, at the end of 2019, showing the, the, the support and the update coverage for all the different branches and also some of the major devices launched uh, Famously, the Lumi 950, the Alcatel Idle for S, and then the 4 Pro, the Elite X3. And I even put a, a panel in there for the Wiley Fox Pro, Rafe, because I, I do understand that they're still intending to release this, despite going into administration, which sounds a bit funny. But uh, Matt and I did talk about this uh, last week. Um, as far as I can make out, they obviously the finance... Finances got pulled out from beneath Wiley Fox's feet. So they're struggling, to, you know, to 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 make make do on a limited number of staff uh, and limited funding. But they're still intending to go ahead with supporting their existing Android handsets. They're still intending to launch new handsets during the year, and they're still intending to 
to, to ship the Wiley Fox Pro, not least because I suspect they've had uh, quite a few tens of thousands made and they've got to find a way of selling them and making some money back. Um, having said that, if you go to Amazon UK at the moment, it's not showing. They've we've pulled it from the listing. So clearly it's not they're not quite ready to uh, resume sales. But I've put in that box rather subtly, Rafe, in grey, just to indicate that it's, uh, it's kind of suspect and may not happen. But I, I do hope it does. Well, I do like the fact that you've marked it as sort of uh, apparently still happening. Uh, financial ways means all bets are off. So you've kind of covered yourself nicely there. Um, but yes, I could easily see this being sold well, certainly throughout most of 2018 while they've still got uh, stock available. Um, the Wiley Fox thing is interesting. I know you spoke about it on the podcast last week, but it, I think it also it's worth saying a lot of the companies that do the approach that Wiley Fox is taking, and I don't want to say it's just sort of taking a white label version of the phone and uh, remembering because that's a disservice to what Wiley, Wiley Fox do. Uh, it's one of the companies that does a much better job of this kind of taking off the shelf device and then customize it to their own own purpose and then provide the services and support around it. Yeah. But obviously the numbers of employees involved probably surprise people how small they are compared to the tens of thousands that we used to talk about with kind of the big name manufacturers but it also means they are quite vulnerable and uh, obviously the financial structure kind of is linked to that relatively small size as well but of course when you're talking about orders of mobile phones you know the, the, they still aren't cheap things when you're talking about ten thousands of them even at a uh, you know a hundred pounds or a couple of hundred pounds a pop that that starts adding up to a lot of money very quickly which is why they can perhaps be a bit more vulnerable than some other companies that are around there, sort of importing and customization uh, of goods. So I really hope they do find a way to kind of solve that problem because I think, you know, structurally speaking, there's absolutely still room for Wiley Fox to do things because they've built up a, a decent name for themselves. They've got some good connections. And so in that sense, I would suggest that the business remains uh, sound. It just needs to have someone with the kind of financial clout to to back it nonetheless it's also worth saying that those companies by their very nature are a little bit vulnerable and we've seen a lot kind of uh, come and go and as i've sort of said before so much i think is dependent on the personal networks of those involved and it's no accident that a lot of the people involved and it's not just white fox there's a, a whole bunch of these companies it always feels like there's a couple popping up in every country uh, it's often they're often run by people who used to be responsible for sales and distributions of phones from one of the bigger manufacturers and they have the right contacts with the retailers or the enterprise customers that they can sort of uh, sell them in and often it's you know a price thing or they know exactly what type of device will work for their particular niche um, but yeah let's hope it it makes it because obviously as i guess the most recent windows 10 mobile device it would be nice to see it at least get a bit of a chance to get out to the public yeah, absolutely. And uh, in last week's podcast, I did rather blame Vladimir Putin for this um, <laughs> on the grounds that he, his new finance reforms were what forced the Russian backers to back out of backing a foreign company, i.e. British company Wiley Fox. So indirectly, it is Putin's fault. But uh, I guess it, it shows, Rafe, that if you're st using a start a startup company and you want backing, ideally you want some kind of investor within your own country or within your own continent taking money from another content, continent altogether and another culture I think was always bound to be a tiny bit risky and uh, I can see why Wiley Fox took the money uh, and said yes we, we have an investor we can go ahead but it all the same it always carried that degree of risk. All right I mean any, any project any company you have to look <laughs> at the risk profile attached to 
various elements of the company and yes outside backing in a different financial regulatory regime is always going to be one that kind of raises a few red flags just as being dependent on a, a single manufacturer or a single source for your um, devices which would often be the ca- case for these companies is probably another one which is why I, I sort of would generally describe them as somewhat fragile um, but that's kind of the point about the business that's where the value is someone is able to exploit that niche or understand the business well enough you know to take what's effectively a commoditized product and find a, a way to sell it and it's a combination of having the right contacts to sell it having the right contacts to build it and the right contacts to get the financial bit to connect those two bits up so uh, yeah, yeah I mean, like, like i say i hope to see wiley fox um continue to do their stuff throughout 2018 rather than to go out with a whimper Absolutely. Well, now, here, Rafe, Rafe, there's a question for you. Do you know who Pekanikanen and Marina Salmanen are? Ever heard of I, them? I believe they're Finnish journalists, aren't they? <laughs> I'm not sure whether you cribbed from the show notes or whether you actually knew that, but uh, they were some Finnish journalists <laughs> who wrote a book called Operatio Elop, um, Operation Elop, or the, the rise and fall of Nokia under Stephen Elop and, and the people before him and after him. Um, <laughs> it's a really interesting book. It goes into extreme depth, Rafe. And the reason I made mention it is that it was only available in Finnish up until last week. And uh, it's, it's by a huge effort by quite a number of people. They've managed to crowd translate it, as far as I can see, into English, which means that in multiple ebook formats, completely for free, everybody can now read this in-depth investigation into what went on at Nokia over that period from about 2010 through to about 2013. Fascinating stuff. It kind of forms a companion volume to David Wood's own own history of a sort of Nokia and Symbian, which takes us up to about 2012, 2013. And this kind of overlaps with it a bit. But uh, this is this is as long as David Wood's book, which is a kind of a compliment because that was also pretty lengthy. I sped a speed read through this, uh, Rafe, and I, I can thoroughly recommend it. I've put an extract in the in the article we'll link to in the show notes. But uh, do you think you could, might find on a rainy day or on a holiday time to read Operation Elop? Oh, definitely. I mean, I had a, a quick look at a few of the chapters, sort of picking out a few highlights, particularly uh, some of the stuff around Meltemi and a lot of the stuff that wasn't so much uh, in the public view. It's really interesting reading this because, um, as you said, it was it was kind of the research for for this and was written in all the interviews where I guess in 2014 and it came out in in 2015. And so actually we're now obviously three years on from then. And actually even now we have a slightly different perspective. And you know people have obviously seen what's happened to uh, Microsoft. Uh, you know, devices in after it took it on from Nokia, which is essentially where the book kind of ends, and there isn't sort of a, yeah. so much of a coda. Um, and actually, I think if you look at it from a perspective of today, it kind of reinforces the conclusion that actually um, Nokia's uh, CEO or acting CEO at the time did a pretty good job of selling devices to Microsoft. In fact, Nokia got a pretty good deal out of it. Uh, and Microsoft arguably made a mistake, but I think in another five years' time, you know, you'll probably get another another bit <laughs> of a view. It's always with the benefit of hindsight. And if I had any criticism of of this book, it would be that it's kind of written from the perspective of I don't want to say um, the loser, but it, it does seek, I think, to do quite a lot of I told you so. And the thing I would always remember about this era, I'm not sure anyone had 
with any certainty could say what exactly the right thing to do was. And actually, the authors acknowledge it. So that criticism is probably unfair. Um, and, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, going with Ansu Van Yocchi and the kind of the multi-platform strategy would appear to be the right thing to do. But even that assumes that could have been well executed and kind of misses the fact that in a lot of ways, Nokia was in a terminal situation and Stephen Edop took some uh, what, with hindsight, were poor decisions, but were actually, to my mind, just very risky to try and turn things around. And it didn't happen. And a lot of it was about a decision that sought to maintain Nokia's position as number one, or at least that's how it thought of itself. And therefore, it wasn't willing to settle for being an also-ran in the Android market, which it probably would have been. And if it had made that decision to go to Android, it, it's entirely possible to see it being maybe not another Sony or HTC, maybe somewhere in between. Would it have reached the heights or the success of Samsung? I honestly think that's that's questionable because I think the whole philosophy of the company and some of its approach to things would have needed to change. Um, and it's kind of a sad thing that all of it, it often seems to happen to me, really successful companies get into a position where they almost sort of have a way of doing things that becomes incredibly successful. And there's no denying Nokia was in that position, but then the context and the circumstances change around them and they just don't change quickly enough. And therefore they are kind of subject to disruption. And you know, there's all the usual stuff about innovators dilemma or whatever is your preferred way of looking at this. Um, so what I do think this does really effectively as a book is it documents how a lot of people felt. It documents a lot of the things that people don't know about that were going on behind the scenes, the kind of internal battle between uh, Maymo uh, and then obviously the Meltemi project and how Windows Phone compared against that. Then what was happening with the Asher devices and obviously the kind of uh, last GARP Android devices that sort of uh, came in and surprised everyone a little bit as well. Um, it also, I, you know, it feels to me slightly overly dismissive of Symbian. And I said with the caveat, I haven't read the full book. Um, and if you read the uh, uh, David Wood book, you'll, you'll certainly get a different perspective from where Symbian was. But um, I remember this at the time in talking to a lot of Nokia people, they were, the, their view was that Symbian's day was done and the sooner it was killed, the better. And a lot of these people tended to be working on the MAMO project and then the subsequent follow follow up to that. Yet, in all honesty, MAMO, um, while it produced, frankly, some amazing devices in the N900 and then the N9 with, in, in its Mego form, actually, to my mind, it, there was a lot of money spent on it. it. A lot of effort went into it and it never really quite proved it. Everyone always said, oh, it's about the next release or the next device. But as I say, even I have my own perspective and I've got... A soft spot for Symbian because I guess that's where my biggest bit of background came yeah. from and yeah. I wonder if you know if you're going to play this what if game you can honestly say well I would have made some strategic changes to the way Symbian was done and could have given that a longer shelf life um, and actually I think that's the real impressive thing about both Android and iOS that so 10 years on for, for both of them they both appear to be as healthy as ever and Previously, I would have said there seems to be like a 10-year lifetime on smartphone platforms. I mean, I guess you could actually say that Apple is having this debate right now. And there's been a lot in the press recently about how Apple is going to concentrate on the stability and quality improvements in iOS 12. Um, but certainly, it's still 
much as much fit for purpose as uh, you know I think it's ever been, and the same is true of Android. So they've managed to continue to develop it and evolve it in place. I think, in not least in part, because they learnt the lessons from their predecessors in terms of uh, Simeon Amigo. Also, I think the underlying hardware architecture and all the context changed has changed less in the last ten years than it did in the ten years before that. I mean, that's maybe you know kind of a get out for for Symbian. But I mean, yeah, it, it's definitely worth reading this book if you've got any interest at all in this kind of history, just because. You know, some of the stories that come out about it, some of which have already been well known with Steve Barmer falling over coffee tables, all the kind of slightly cloak and dagger negotiations that went on. The fact that Nokia realized that the here maps asset was incredibly valuable and wasn't willing to let that go. We've said in the past, Microsoft really should have bought that. but actually, they were basically not given the choice. Also, the fact that there's all these uh, software development projects going on that most of the time the public's completely oblivious to and they you know have a timeline of three four even more years before they actually make it into a public device and thousands of people working on them in multiple sites and i think uh, the one that people will probably be least aware of is mel temi that was going on in um ulu and uh Ulm in germany and 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 to me there's just something quite fascinating about reading that history um and then of course you try and tie it back into the politics of kind of corporate business and and actually those are almost two separate stories for me at least um and i, I it's probably fair to say that stephen elop is kind of the villain of this book but i i think you know in in any of these stories uh things things kind of get oversimplified yeah. and you know i still think you know the conspiracy theories that exist around this in that setting out to deliberately try i just you know don't hold any credence for me um i do think the most interesting discussion to have around this is actually you know what was the true situation how desperate was it and was the level of risk that was taken merited or would it have been safer and more sensible to go for another option and it's always going to be a a what if because you have no real way of knowing what actually would have happened so uh, but uh, it's clearly a topic that people are fascinated by so yeah great to see this translated into english so a thank you to the author for letting that happen and no, I'm somewhat in awe of the translation team for organising that crowd translation. Yeah, yeah. And it, any commentary on, on this sort of situation over a number of years? Uh, you always have to bear in mind also that the goalposts in the industry oh, are changing. It's, if it was just if the mobile world was set in stone and it, to have companies rising and fall, you could actually look at why they rise, rose and fell uh, on using objective c- criteria. The fact, But the entire world is changing around these companies. The way we, we operate in our smartphones, the technologies, the things people want to do. Each year, people invent another use for a phone that hadn't been even thought of the year before. So all of these things that Steve Elop may or may not have decided, but the Nokia board may or not may, may not have decided... All of things, these things were in the context of the mobile world at that time. Which of us might have made different decisions? That is a, that's a, a great party and around the, 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 <laughs> the coffee pot game, I guess, Rafe. My favourite yeah, favorite bit is the, uh, the burning platform, as people know. We won't rehash old ground. I think that leaving Symbian in the lurch for 12 months before they had something to fill a gap, that was the, kind of the nail in the coffin. But clearly there was a coffin already being constructed. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think uh, in retrospect, the burning platform 
probably was more of a serious mistake than I certainly thought so at the time. I know Steve at the time, um, he can definitely say I told you so because he called <laughs> it pretty much exactly at, at that at the time. But I think that point about being a armchair CEO is is yeah. really important to make. And people get very understandably quite emotive about this subject. And I still talk to people about, about it who are in the industry, run, in, run into people and you know, it's something they feel really strongly about and quite rightly too because people that should be passionate about their work and care about what's happening but it is important to recognize that it's easy to look back with hindsight the goalposts absolutely do move and the kind of context of how the mobile world operates does does change and you know the power of operators the competitors that you've got around you are just part of it and like as you say you know what you're able to do with the phones has changed immeasurably i mean if you think the era in which Symbian was conceived, you know, we're talking about the Cyan PDA, you know, the completely pre-smartphone, you know, in, in some ways it's remarkable that they were as far-sighted as they were in terms of what was going to happen. <laughs> but, you know, thinking where we are now, it, it's it's almost completely unrecognisable. And to me, that was probably the biggest challenge to be overcome. And, you know, the, the sad thing for me is that Nokia absolutely knew what the vision was going to be. If you look at a lot of their things, you know, from Ovi, uh, download app stores, yeah. even the devices themselves. In terms of looking at something like the Nokia seventy one ten and Series ninety, you know they saw all of this. But just because you saw, see it doesn't mean you can necessarily execute on it and, and execute it on a company wide scale. So you know it, it's yeah. hard to do. And honestly, I think the biggest challenge in all this, the, the reason it went wrong, and of course you can criticise the decisions made. It's just really hard to operate in an environment that changes that rapidly when you've got so many competitors around you that are either starting from scratch you know kind of android and ios and apple are, are good to talk about there or who just have an opportunity to make decisions in a different yeah. way because they've got a slightly different set of priorities or, or discussions so um, yeah, one yeah. of the things that kind of still bothers me is the way people take it very personally get very emotive about it because you know i <laughs> it may be slightly yeah, optimistic but i try to think that no one sets out to destroy companies or destroy livelihoods um, could they have made smarter decisions? Yes, absolutely. Um, but when is that not true? Yeah, yeah. I think you were talking about um, the life cycle of an operating system as being 10 years. I think that's a rule that we came up with between mm. us over the last couple of years of podcasts. And I think the problem for Symbian and Nokia was that they were utterly dominant. When you're uh, dominating a marketplace for so many years, then it's so much harder to react to the changing circumstances. As you say, you quite rightly hit the nail on the head. If you're a startup, as Apple was in phones in 2007, as Google and Android were in 2008, then you can, okay, things are changing. We can adapt. We will write for the changed market. But Nokia and Symbian were utterly dominant, 60% market share in 2007. To go from that to think, okay, we've got to completely re-engineer everything. That it just wasn't going to happen with the Nokia culture at the time. And as you say, they're just too big, too complex, too many different divisions, too many fiefdoms, too much infighting, and it just couldn't adapt. But it's a fascinating yeah. story. Do go and read the, the. There's an EPUB. There's a PDF and various other formats. So everybody should be able to read that book somehow. It's been wonderfully translated. I, I didn't spot a single typo in my speed read. So uh, they've kind of spent a lot of care and love and attention. It doesn't go all the way, Rafe, but dare I suggest that the story from 2014 onwards is covered by a subscription to allaboutwindowsphone.com. <laughs> Indeed, yes. I mean, I think uh, there will be a book, a book written about 2014 to 2018 at some point, I'm sure. One of the uh, people within the Microsoft mobile organization will will look to do something similar. 
Um, and I look forward to reading that, whether that's in a year's time or in five years' time. We'll, we will have to wait and see. Yeah, it's good to see Nokia making a resurgence, actually, as a brand and as a company. Absolutely. I know they're owned by this kind of shell HMD Global, but they, they, these Nokia phones they're churning out are actually very, very decent smartphones. And there's a talk of a new imaging-centric flagship coming in the next few weeks. So, yeah, do have a look out at that for MWC, Rafe. See if you can find us a high-megapixel Nokia. Well, wouldn't that be nice? Yes, I, I'm kind of optimistic that we'll see something i mean last time around of course they did the 3110 and uh, <laughs> talked about some of their android devices yeah. um and it's interesting you know the numbers that recently came out suggest that hmd and as you say you know it, it, people criticize it for saying it's nokia in name only actually a lot of the people involved are ex nokians and yeah. um as much as the market is changing we were talking about wiley fox earlier you know it's kind of a uh, somewhere on the spectrum between that and you know samsung doing all your own devices but a lot of the philosophy, I think it's fair to say, remains the same, even if some of we talked about this when you reviewed, I think it was the Nokia 8. Yeah. You know, the imaging isn't quite there, but there's certainly elements of it. And it's nice to see you know, even if it's just from a nostalgia point of view, the, the name doing well. And I was intrigued to see in the most recent set of kind of shipment numbers, it suggested that they got one percent market share of uh, smartphones, which obviously a uh, far cry from the 60 percent you were just talking about. But so outselling HTC outselling the Pixel devices, which I think just goes to show what the power of the Nokia brand is is still out there. And if you put a sensible portfolio of devices together at a range of price points, you're 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 going to find people that are willing to go for it because you know it's that familiarity thing. Um, you go, I buy Nokia because it's a, a safe choice. I like it. You know, a lot of the brand and design heritage that they've inherited from Nokia. You know, there's a reason Nokia did well in the first place because a lot of those things were popular. People liked the Nokia design, the durability, um, the the way of doing things. And you can have a debate about how well that's translated over to the HMD devices, but nonetheless, that's a, a powerful thing. And particularly when so many Android devices feel very samey, it's been completely commoditized. Actually, you know, the set of values that Nokia of old put together the HMD. I think it's it's fair to say have tried to replicate or tried to ape, you know, make for a good combination. And yeah. we've said many times in I think probably the last fifteen years, Steve, that you know whenever you're putting a smartphone together, it is a set of compromises and the equation that you use to balance those and come up with your final device. You know where you choose to spend the money or what size you choose to make the device. You know, there's an infinite number of combinations. And some of those are quite subjective things around kind of brand and style and materials. Some of them are very technical around which components you choose to use, which camera module, which approach. Um, and so putting those all together, you know, that's been the challenge for every single manufacturer. And then, you, you know, there's the hardware itself and obviously the software sitting on top of it, but also the sales and services. And we kind of talked about that with Wiley Fox or the ability to get your device fixed, you know, Apple has kind of been the past master of that in many ways, take it to the Apple store, get a expert or a genius to look at it. Um, and it, it's really nice, as I say, to see HMD kind of, can I say, inherit some of that Nokia equation of putting phones together and say, yeah, I'll definitely check it out in Barcelona. And that's one of the things I look forward to reporting back on. Yeah, back in the day, people used to joke, what, hey, guys, just call your site all about Nokia. Well, you never know. There, there, there may be scope <laughs> for it all about Nokia 
yet to come with the resurgence of the brand. I think we're out of time, Rafe. I did have another story, but I'll leave people to check on the site. My story, an honest comparison, the pros and cons of a switch to Android, has got 150 comments in the last 24 hours, and people are still going at it. So I think we'll maybe come back to that next time either a guest or yourself is on, and we'll come to to your take on uh, Windows 10 Mobile versus Android. But for now, I will say goodbye. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next week. Yeah, thanks, everybody. Always appreciate you listening and your feedback. And a big thank you to Steve, as ever, for corralling me onto the podcast, writing all the great content. And yes, please tune in next time. Bye.